0: Welcome to the ninth episode of our second season of the X Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Delaney Howell. On this installment of the show, we're talking about both the sow and the piglet. And as you'll later hear, we discuss what we can do as caretakers in order to ensure the ultimate care for our sows in order to decrease both piglet and sow mortality. Survivability and the sow go hand in hand, so let's learn more about that and how it impacts the operation with Dr. Ron Ketchum of 30 and Up Consulting, who I caught up with to have a great conversation. Serving in the industry, we won't give away the exact length of time you've been in there, but you've been in the industry for quite a while. You are a veteran in the swine industry. Talk to us about your background to start out.
1: My background, I grew up on a domestic farm in Missouri. You know, We had cattle, sheep, and we had you know, all the domestic things. Learned early on at agriculture, something I liked. Went to the University of Missouri to school and was on an honors program there. So I got to do my basic studies. So I have a BS in animal science. But then I was mentored by the head of reproduction. I was one of his students and got involved with the research they were doing with some of the graduate students. Even learned how to do basic egg recoveries and stuff. Then I did some master studies at my last year there that uh, I didn't have a master's, but I did master's studies toward that in reproductive physiology and animal breeding. So I had those kinds of expertise. I learned how to do AI. I, AI'd my first sow in 1969. That's starting to date me. <laughs> but uh, AI was something they were using in the research farm and something I picked up on. So my first job out of school is working with a genetic company developing their AI breeding program, which started out with them in 1973. So And their reason there was a genetics company that wanted to transfer genes around, but they did not want to take live animals between their multiplication system. So we would go in, we had a central boar stud, collect the boars, go out, breed them that day, a few sows in that farm, and so then to raise the next generation replacement animals for that farm. And so at that time, it was collect the boar one day, extend a semen because we had no good extenders, collect him the next day, hope he would collect the next day and go back and breed him a second time. So it was pretty crude, but we got the job done and we did it by, you know, not having to bring live animals into populations. So health was a key area way back then in the seventies.
0: Yeah. And it's crazy to see how much health has evolved to today because most recently you served as a consultant or you owned swine Management Services before that was sold to Meta Farms.
1: Yeah, it's a site management services was a management company that Brina Mills had started in 1994. And at that time, these large sow farms were going in. Investors would put so much money in and of of fair one sows at home. They would take back pigs from these co-op units. So that was the main growth of them was going on. So this particular group would then help basically help you find a piece of land. They had drawings that they would do to help you build a building. They would do off-site breeding projects, populate the barn. They'd hire and fire the management and do your financials and all your record keeping so that's where i went to work with they started in 94 i joined the group in 2000 i was charge of all the training and genetic evaluation that was being done then in 2001 land of lakes comes in and they buy out perina mills they did not want the swine management services division of perina mills so uh, part of it was spun off to another group, and there was a few of us left. And Mark Ricks and I decided to buy it. So we took ownership of that company in August of 2002, and we changed the the floor plan of it. At that time, they were hiring and firing people. We went back to strictly doing record keeping, doing financials, and then we kind of hit upon uh, doing farm analysis. Which we would take the data from a records from a program, put it into a set of charts and stuff we created and write them back a note saying, here's some things that are good. Here's some things that are bad. Here's some things we'd like to see you try. So that grew uh, over the years to one time we were doing about 200 farms, about 450,000 sows, uh, U.S., Canada, and a little bit in Australia. So people wanted us to tell them what the data said, we made suggestions, and then those farms took back that back to their managers and then made the changes. So that was a big part of what SMS was doing.
0: So let's talk about that data, because obviously with that role, you were collecting a lot of data, you were able to look at a lot of different trends that were happening across the industry. Talk to us a little bit about the last 16 years when you look at mated and weaning data.
1: Okay. We, we we got then approached by genetic company to say, can you take these 10 farms and can you compare them somehow? And so that's where the benchmarking started. So then we started going to the genetic companies and saying, you give us some of your producers with their, their records and we'll compare them and compare them against the data set. So it started in 2005, I think we had 125,000 sows in the first Round that we did, the, the key component we figured out is there was different record programs out there that had different calculations. And so the National Pork Board in the late 90s actually came up with a set of calculation that they would like to suggest for like pigs weaned per made to female per year. So we incorporated those calculations. We would pull raw data in from the different record programs and then standardize the data so you could compare across the different record programs. And at one time in SMS, we had 26 different record programs that we pulled data from, from to put into the benchmark program. So by being able to do that, we were then could take a genetic company that had maybe 100 producers that had 10 different record programs and standardize the data and give it back to them. An individual report went to the farm, a composite report went to the genetic company, and they could see how they were doing compared within their own, their own company and also compared to a larger data set. So it's grown from that 125,000 to, we're about 1.8 million sows that are in it now. And as I mentioned earlier, there's about 30,000 sows in there that are from Australia which represents about 10% of the production of Australia. And then there's about 350,000 sows in there, which is, again is about 30% of the sows in Canada that are in that data set. And uh, so it's it's been interesting to gather all this data and it would be cost all genetic lines, all ages of facilities, all management levels, all sizes of farms, and then be able to sort that stuff out into different Components like size of farm or things like that, and then uh, be able to look at data. So, we had this big research set of data, commercial data, that let us dive into it and, do, and write, write papers and uh, do research parts and look at data.
0: So, talk to me a little bit about some of the research that you did specifically around female death loss.
1: When we tracked it, we tried to break the data out. We used to break it out in, in increments of top 10%, and the next 20%, 20%, and the bottom 30%. So a few years ago, we decided we'd just go to the top 10% we'll go with, the, with the, the average of all. So we actually saw when we started the data set that actually overall death loss starting back in 2005 dropped for about three or four years. And our, in our thought process is that's when the National Pork Board introduced PQA, Pork Quality Assurance, where you were training people on farms, certifying them how to use and do vaccinations and things like that. We saw it drop. And then we saw it kind of level off. And then the all numbers started out about six, seven years ago, it started to go up about a half a percent a year and really not knowing exactly why. But we saw that as a trend line. And we saw the top 10% farms, they basically drove it down to, to less than 6% there for several years. Even the last about five years, they've seen their numbers go up to about, I think it's 8.5% now is the last year was the average of that top 10% farm. So uh, that that's why this has kind of been alarming to a lot of people in the industry is why is it happening and what do we got to do to fix it?
0: And I think that's really kind of the initiative of the Livability Project and Grant is to try and identify the reason why behind some of those factors.
1: Yeah, and there have been some some side studies done. National Pork Board did the prolapse study back in 2018, tried to look at that area. And again, a lot of things were reviewed. Not uh, Some conclusions came out of it, but uh, some things came out of it that weren't causing it, but we never got to the root cause of what really causes that to happen. Same thing here we are now. And just like I shared with the group, you know, when we narrow down the death loss and look at a time period at 30 percent occurring in a nine day period, a couple days before farrowing through farrowing. So why is that? What do we what do we got to change to address that issue? We also talked about the shifting of the last few years into the younger parodies. We're now 47%, we did this I like think, a year ago, of the death losses be zeros, ones, and twos. And I think it's an underestimated number because a lot of farms don't add their gilts in until they breed them. So what is happening in that gilt pool as far as death loss is probably not recorded. It could probably be a part of that number. It may be as high as 50% of the gilts they started with of the zeros, ones, and twos are being culled mm-hmm. by, by that second parity.
0: It feels like a lot of questions right now.
1: I think it's a lot of questions. And, and, and people like me are pretty good about asking questions with what the data tells us. And we just say, hey, what's going on? What's causing that to happen?
0: So you also talked about when you look at the economics behind mortality and some of the trends you've seen, you also talked about the value of a dead sow and how you went about calculating that, because that obviously is a big impact on a On a producer's bottom line, how did you walk through that and what is the value?
1: Well, I'm not an economist by design. I think something that the economists would create will be a lot more detailed than what I did. So I just kind of called it farmer math. But we looked at you bought a gill, you developed her. It's $300, $320, $50 you've invested here. And that's gone. We looked at the feed cost. Usually these animals that die... Or dying before farrowing gestation, the only we have a litter of pigs in them. So we say we we've got the feed for that litter of pigs. We got to consider there's some vaccinations, and then I put in there that loss of income of that dead litter, you know. And, and you know it's there was an animal there that could have sold me, and I use example of eleven pigs at thirty five dollars. That that was income that I did not receive, and I put that in cost. So that's another cost I put in. Now, a lot of people don't think about that. And then I looked at the, the loss of the, the, the not able to cull, to sell that cull animal because she died. And, uh, you know, there's 450 pounds I used as weight. I used 35 cents a hundred. Well, today, that's probably about double that. We lost that income to the farm. So I came up with about $1,000 as the cost of we did sell that you take out of there. And then again, I, I haven't put in there the cost of the extra labor, the disposal, You know, extra replacement costs increase to getting more gilts into the farm. There's lots of things that probably need to be considered in a a more modern model that 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 cost could be $1,500 real simply from a dead animal. And that's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. It
0: certainly is. You kind of broke it up today into two different segments. So we were talking about sows. We also talked, you also talked a little bit about piglet mortality. But before we get to that, I I thought this was hilarious that you shared with the group today, talking about pedicures for pigs. (laughs) (laughs) What? We we now need to give pedicures to our pigs. Yeah.
1: Several years ago, I attended a conference that was put on by Zinpro, I think in in Minneapolis. And one of their research people I knew pretty well, uh, Dr. Wilson, and we got to talking about that. And he actually had at that conference, they brought in some, some feet from some animals and they showed how they were starting to do trimmings and showing at that time they didn't have the walking like the, like it was shown from the PAC rep. But they, they were showing us that all this stuff is grown on the extra growth of the toes, the uneven growth, the growth of the, the dew claws. And I kind of took that to heart saying, you know, I got lots of farms. When I look down the pen, the pens or the crates we got treated animals in, there's a lot of them We're doing something with their feet, a busted toe, a pulled off dewclaw. I said, that's something we got to look at. So I actually worked with them and we looked at, at trimming feet. Now they actually, there's a lift station. I have one group I work with that has a lift station at each farm. They can lift the sow up, they take a grinder. They, they have somebody that's pretty much a full-time job. So I said, I, that's, that's a $10,000 investment. I said, we can probably do something simpler. So I went to the store and I got a set of clippers I took to a farm, and we went about trimming toes. And we found that a few toes needed to be trimmed, but it was mainly the dew claws. And there's actually some just simple rules of thumb on trimming the toes and trimming the dew claws. Is is trimming the dew claw back to where the coronary band is, which is where the hair and the hoof uh, separate. Just clipping that uh, dew claw off at that level. It gets, it gets it above the ground. It's not going to get stuck like it would if, if it overgrows. And same thing with the toes. We trim the toes back to uh, basically it's about 50 millimeters or, the, or three fingers uh, from, from where the hair is on that. We can trim that toe back that far to try to even it up. So ours looks kind of crude. But again, it gets the sow back where she's got her weight distribution even again. And that's what's causing her when she shifts those feet, it wears the pads the pads get worn, she gets a crack in her hoof, and she gets infection, then we got a big problem. And same thing with the dew claws. If that dew claw is pulled off or it's busted, infection takes place real quick, and we really can't a lot of times treat them out of it, we end up uh, getting a large foot and we end up having to euthanize the sow. So I've got farms now, when they walk their sows up from gestation to the pharaoh houses, somebody makes a note on or left back dew claw seems to be a little bit long somebody will be within the next day or two will be in there trimming off that dew claw and i've got a cell farm and i put this in pretty religiously a couple of years ago and we dropped our cell uh, mortality 3% just by trimming those feet so it's it's something that has economic value and it just has to be part of the process now of of working in a cell barn
0: and so you mentioned there dropped cell mortality by 3% you talked a little bit today also about the standardization of female death loss reasons. Would you classify that as a locomotion issue? As yeah, a
1: locomotion okay. issue. Yeah. Yeah. So we want to get it into six buckets instead of, you know, 70 or 80, which we see on a lot of the things. So when we wrote the article, we wanted it to look at that. But locomotion, whether you look at and just death loss of animals or combined locomotion is like injuries and, and things like that. If we look at that, in most of the data sets i look, it's one of the highest reasons for calls and deaths. And so I think sometimes we point our in the wrong direction, just like with prolapse, I think it's something we need to work on. And it's a visual. We see it. But there are other things that are not. The sow that walks up to the farrowing house, it's got a bad foot. We try to farrow her out. We know she's not going to do well and we may end up having a euthanizer afterward. We should have fixed her foot before we got her up there. Mm -hmm. So I think sometimes we got to reposition where we're going with some of this information.
0: And those six categories, like you mentioned, were locomotion, disease, intestinal, reproductive, performance, and then kind of an other bucket. How would you rank those? You mentioned locomotion was towards the top, but how do the rest of those rank?
1: Well, again, uh, we've seen the the intestinal one. We've seen that. Reproduction have actually gone down as far as what that particular data I shared with you that Dr. Dean had put together. We still see that category in there of, of other still being 30 to 40% of the of the thing. And we've tried to get that as a, so so we got to do a better job of classifying some of those others into one of those uh, six categories to make it easier to work with. But again, as we showed in the example, the, the locomotion one at this particular subset of over 10 years had tripled One of the quarters, what it was like in 2005 and 2016, it had tripled the number of animals under locomotion. So definitely an area that we've got to look at.
0: And so... This is something we like to do commonly with an episode. We're not done yet because I still want to talk and touch on piglets. You're not out. You're not out of the off the hook yet. But we always like to share take-home messages with producers or folks listening. So when you kind of put a bow on this, a conclusion here for sow mortality, how would you summarize that? Or what are some specific things for? Those working in the swine industry to think about take home and maybe implement in their own operations.
1: I think it all starts with the gilt selection process and the gilt development process. We've got to get our gilts on the farm within you know 60, 70 pounds of weight. So we develop them, we grow them as replacement gilts, not finisher gilts, and. We've got to take ownership of that to develop them. And during that process, we need to be culling out the unsound animals, the animals that have, you know, the toe issues, things like that, and when and, and develop those animals. So when we have a gilt that comes up to the breeding area and hopefully 300 plus pounds, she's had at least one skip heat. It'd be nice to see them crate exposed for a few days to help total born. But she's ready to go. We've eliminated those animals that are substandard. But again, we, we, in a lot of farms, we don't have that facility built on the older farm, so we're doing it somewhere else. Or we're bringing in mature animals, we isolate them 30 days, we bring them into the farm. All those things are not part of that development process of the gilt. So we've got to be firm about her gilt development. Then we've got to incorporate in there. Basically, if we do good selection, then we have to incorporate in there looking at our nutrition that fits the developing gilt, that fits the sow and something that can address the quality of the toe and the dewclaw. So that needs to be looked at again. And then the other one is the toe maintenance or the pedicures. We've got to make sure that when, a, when an animal comes out of the pharaoh and house or goes in, depending on which way you want to look at it, some farms do it when they come out, they'll, they'll check the feet, they'll trim them. I've, I've got some farms that are like 5,600 sows. They may do 70 or 80 animals a week that come out of the pharaoh and house. Now, my way, because I think it's safer uh, when we don't have a, a lift station, is we do it in the farrow and crate when they go in. So when they leave there, their, their dew claws are trimmed, their toes are trimmed even, and we're ready to then put her back into the breeding and uh, hope we'll have less problems with her. So it's going to be a step process, but it's all going to start with getting gilts on the farm earlier developing the gilts as replacement gilts, not finisher animals, and doing routine maintenance then of those feet to to really work on the areas we see the most critical for sow death loss.
0: So, Ron, you mentioned you're not really an economist by training. No. But as you look at the economic impact of sow mortality versus piglet mortality, which way do we skew as losing more value in the industry?
1: We've got enough pigs. Uh, we 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 don't lack for pigs in the farrowing house to try and save. But every time we lose a sow, the the cost whether you want to put $1000 or 1500 goes up. The replacement rate goes up, you know, even even from the labor thing. We have got labor now removing dead sows that should be in the farrowing house saving us some pigs. So we've having to divert some of our labor to, to projects that are not productive to us to, to improve the bottom line. So it, it's a huge cost to the, of a dead sow to, to the program. Yeah, piglet survival, yeah, we got to work on that. But again, most farms have enough pigs to meet their requirement. It's, it's, it's that they need enough quality sows that's living in there to be able to, to meet their weaning needs.
0: And even today, as you were talking about piglet, mortality rates, a lot of it still seemed to be linked back to really taking care of that sow, whether it was feed or just grooming them for farrowing. But the feed one I thought really was interesting in particular. Can you talk to us a little bit about the research that you did in the...
1: Oh, uh, the feeding? For, yeah, for yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was actually... I, I read some of the European journals that come out and that came out a few years ago. I think Pig Progress or one of those. I, it's intrigued. You know, it says feeding meal diets, uh, feeding meal several times a day to sows pre-farrow, lowered the length of time it took her to farrow, and and it correlated to lowering stillborns. And I said, that's something we could probably do. You know, there's not a lot of farms. There's a lot of the bigger farms. We have 24-7 labor in there. So we're attending the sows that are farrowing, you know, all night and every day. So that's really helped reduce stillborns in those farms. But Not all farms have the labor to do it. You don't. You know, some of the size farms are not big enough that they're farrowing so many sows at night. So I said this could be something practical that we could actually use. So as I say, I went to the farm. I showed you the example of they actually. It's a newer farm. Known the family for years, and uh, they actually had a a tube that comes down that they feed the sows with that had graduated numbers on it. So we could fill that tube up with six pounds of feed, and then we decided to go at, at. 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, and 3 in the afternoon, going four hours apart there, knowing if we give her a small snack of about a pound and a half is what we used in initial modeling. And a pound and a half a diet, her energy level is going to be up. So when she's farrowing, she's getting those pigs out quicker. So we started doing that. And as, you, as we showed you an example, we dropped stillborns from about one and a half to down to about 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7 pigs, or cut it almost in half just by changing the feed regimen. We didn't add any night people. We still had somebody in there till about eight o'clock at night, but we didn't have 24 seven, seven day a week labor, but dropped it substantially. And we know those are usually bigger pigs. They're more robust if we can keep them alive. They don't take a lot of care to be a live pig that gets weaned later on. So, so we tried that there. So we did it for an entire year in a 4,500 sow unit. So that's a lot of reps. And it basically showed us we can do that. And then we decided there were some sows that, you know, feraled after our, the guys leave in the evening at eight o'clock. What could we do with them? So then we changed the timing. We went up to about four to four and a half hours between the feedings. We went to six. We went to 10, or so, went to 230. Then we went in before they left, seven thirty, eight o'clock, and we gave her another a pound and a half of feeding we dropped the steelborns down to, to around 2% and about 0. 0.4. We dropped them down about 3 tenths by doing that. Again, those sows that were farrowing after the crew left, they had an energy boost, like an energy bar or our or energy drink or, a, or one of those right before they started to finish out their farrowing. And so that they farrowed out and we had a stillborn drop that was occurring at night when nobody was there. So it allowed us to take farms that are smaller in size introduce a feeding strategy like this, and reduce stillborns without having to add labor and extend labor through the night. So it, it works so cool. And again, it was just something that uh, we, we gave a try to. I've had other farms try it, similar results, some not as good. Again, I think part of it is is, is is making sure it's done on a regular basis. Every three to four hours, she gets some diet. So it keeps her energy level up. Now, I mentioned that K-State did a study similar to it. But they went every six hours, and they basically saw no difference. They didn't, between the controls and the fed every six hours, they did not reduce stillborns. But it was too long a time. She she needs that feed in every three to four hours. So she keeps her energy level high, her sugar level high in her system. So when she's farrowing, she's getting the pigs out of there, reduce the farrowing time. And when we thought of the farm, we reduced the farrowing time in most cells by about 40%. So it's not getting that prolonged farrowing. She gets tired. At the end, she has the stillborn pigs. We got the pigs out of there. So again, a little change of how you manage it had a huge impact on what we were doing at the cell farm.
0: And it was it really was a simple change. Probably didn't cost the producer a whole lot more because they were just spreading that feed rationale. Yeah, yeah a little bit. bit of
1: labor to go back there on mm-hmm. the sows. that's going to farrow on the next day or two is all the ones we concentrated on. And a little time doing that, it made big dividends.
0: Ron, as you look at what's coming for the industry next five to 10 years? What do you anticipate as far as changes or things that we need to be, have top of mind for us?
1: I think probably the, the concerns I have are some of the things that are being driven. Like, you know, we, we've started, we started work, you know, we're adapting to, to sow housing now in gestation. Well, yeah, I don't think we exactly know what that ideal number is. Is it 10 sows or 300? You know, how are we going to feed them? I think it's a huge part. I think electronic sow feeding will be, a lot more in vogue as we get to pens where at least she gets to go in, we can give her a body score, we can give her so much diet every day and she doesn't have to compete for it. So I think that's going to be where we're going to be moving. And and we've learned, I think we can manage sow farms that are in uh, pens. We've got sow farms well above 30 pigs that are in pen gestation today. So we know how to understand that. The one that concerns me is a couple of things, the Prop 12. Basically telling us that uh, we can't allow sows from the time they're weaned until they're bred a few days to be in a crate uh, more than a few hours. Well, we went to crates several years ago because we had weaned sows. We put them in a pen. They start fighting when they come into heat. And we're trying to breed them. And it's, it's, it's a lot of, of, of injury to the sows along with the people trying to do that task. And uh, I, I think they've overstepped us a little bit there. If we go to that, we're going to see an increase in sow death loss. Uh, because of the fighting, the injuries that's going to take place, and I personally think we'll see some drop in performance, probably farrowing rate, and maybe even in total born. The other area that concerns me is the farrowing house. You know, we I've got farms I work with. We uh, we have a we have turnaround farrowing crates in them, but we're allowed to lock the sow down for up to seventy-two hours while she's in the in the farrowing process. And after that's done, then we can open up the crates and let her move around. I think that's something we can live, with. But if we eliminate the be able to the ability to lock the sow down for a period of time and she's in a pen, that takes away from our ability to sleeve a sow that's in distress. You know, because now we're putting people in the pen with a sow and we're putting them in danger. So, so we're trying to make it better for the sow, but they're not thinking about the danger we're putting the employees in, getting in here trying to get trying to uh, reach up a sow and pull out a dead pig. So I think we will see more sows dying in the labor process because of pigs that get hung up in them and more increase in stillborns and pre-weaning mortality because we can't assist a sow during that farrowing process. And uh, I think it's going to be a, a real negative to the industry. And uh, maybe that's what some of these folks wanted to happen you know that we're not that they can have more data, that we're not doing a good job. But we want to be transparent. What we do, we just need to sit down and talk and say what's practical here. I think the Europeans they they haven't done a good job of being transparent and working to try. They get something legislated in, they just try to readapt to it. I think we gotta we gotta work with people. But I think everything will continue to go up until we. we we got to put things in place that allow us to work with the animal for the best of the animal and the safety of the employees. And we've got to be able to work with that.
0: And I think that's a big goal around this grant. And I know a lot of moving pieces are happening. A lot of folks like you and others are working to make those changes sustainable across the entire industry. But Ron, certainly appreciate your time today. Oh,
1: it's been my pleasure. I, I enjoy doing these kinds of things. And as I'm kind of going into this partial retirement, uh, I've already got a couple groups I'm going to be doing some work with. They're doing some innovative things that I'm kind of intrigued with. And I still got a, a few years in here to probably contribute to what the industry's doing. But it, it's it's been really great for me. You know, I started in 1973 and I've gone through the out from the outside to the inside, and now we want to go back outside. It's just been interesting all the different transitions we've gone to and the technology. But you know, but as we showed you in the table for 16 years. The efficiency of the sow's gone up. That that's important. We're trying to be competitive, make meat a, a good value for people, and make it competitive. And I think the problem is there's people now trying to trying to tell us what we should be doing when it's not there. They don't have the knowledge to to, to do that for us. We want to be efficient. We want to have a high quality protein that's at a reasonable cost for people to consume. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens.
0: The guilt selection and guilt development processes both serve as two of the most important factors when decreasing sow mortality. And of course, those six buckets Dr. Ketchum shared are also keys to decreasing mortality, which were locomotion, disease, intestinal, reproductive performance, and other. That link between piglet survivability and sow care is essential. And although piglet mortality is important, sow mortality can be more costly and harder to rebuild. So go ahead, give those sows their pedicures. Tune in next month as we share some opportunities for measurable impact in your operation. Until then, I'm Delaney Howell, and this has been another episode of the X Podcast.
1: PigX is a national podcast hosted by the Pig Livability Project Partners at Iowa State University, Kansas State University, and Purdue, and supported by the Iowa Pork Industry Center. For more information on the project, head to www.piglivability.org, or to inquire directly with questions regarding the project, email ipic at iastate.edu. X. Ideas in the swine industry worth sharing.